0: Refugee Radio, 855 5, AM, 3CR.
1: Hi, this is Rafib Ziada and you're listening to 3CR, pro-Palestinian, happily proud
2: radio.
3: We want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land who we are broadcasting from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and respect the elders past, present, and emerging, and their ongoing struggle. You're listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR. We're listening to The Wait Podcast, episode
0: This episode contains references to suicide. Listen
2: with care.
4: So I'm out of the interview. It wasn't an interview, basically. She started explaining that we will... we will never get resettled. My dad got upset and he was like, it's, in, it's injustice. He said he wants to go burn himself in
1: front of UNHCR. That's the last thing you said. <sighs> we left off last episode in a pretty dark place. It's a year and a half since that bad interview at UNHCR. In the end, your dad didn't burn himself that day.
4: No, but it's really complicated. It's not over. You know, it's hard for me to talk about it. Maybe it's better if I talk to you about it another time.
1: Can you tell me about your dad back in Iran then? What was he like there?
4: I can't think of a thing that I didn't have as a child or I wanted and I didn't get, you know.
1: What work did he do?
4: He was a graphic designer and he did advertisements, so billboards, you know, business cards, everything. He would stay until late hours at night to continue working. I I guess he loved his job. Our family had a pretty comfortable, middle-class life in Iran, but everything suddenly changed. It started with my dad printing material for the opposition movement. Many
2: wondered if Iran's opposition movement was dead, the so-called
4: Green Movement. Today, they were beaten, tear-gassed, and thrown in jail. At that time, thousands and thousands of people were being arrested but hard numbers on deaths or detentions are hard to come by. His shop was raided, his staff were arrested, and we knew we were next. They were looking for us. I'm Mojgal Marafizadeh.
1: I'm Nicole Kirby.
4: This is The Wait,
1: a podcast series that uncovers how Australia is pushing its borders out.
4: And brings into the lives of refugees like me who are caught on the borderline in Indonesia.
1: Now you're stuck in Indonesia and you're railing against being there with every fibre of your being. I want to know how you got to be where you
4: are. In this episode, we go back. Okay, should we start?
5: I'm Hossein, I'm from Iran, 22 years
1: old. guns taking your phone away from you.
4: Playing with phone all the time. One of the first friends I met in Indonesia was Hossein. I remember him being this little boy. He was really chubby and very naughty. His mom was always mad at him because he couldn't sit still. But now he's twice my size. He speaks fluent Bahasa Indonesia. He lives in this refugee accommodation just outside Jakarta.
1: It's this huge long building with like hundreds of kind of like boxy little rooms.
4: he oh, says security sees this, is, is, is going to start
1: asking questions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Better no. uh, I wanted to start recording out the front, but he wouldn't let me because he was a bit worried about us walking around with headphones and a recorder on. But yeah, we walked past like all of these little families and screaming kids until we finally arrived at his room that he shares with his dad.
4: The two of them share a little room with two single beds that literally touch toe to toe. He'd kicked his dad out for the afternoon when we met him. <laughs> okay.
5: We met, it was on um, June 2013, around 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. We met in the boat, so...
4: It was the first time we met, and we met on a boat, wanting to head to Australia. We were so close to each other, like a box of dates, squeezed into each other. And I was complaining, obviously, crying, being so upset. And Jose was a tiny little boy at that time. He had this baby face that he doesn't have anymore.
5: You didn't change. You're still the same Mushkan, yeah. <laughs> The tiny girl, the short.
4: Short and tiny.
5: <laughs> it's My been, hair has changed. Yeah, I it was like a hair. couche. <laughs>
2: yeah,
4: couche. <laughs> so that's, been, that's an Arabic word. It means like really poofy, big hair.
5: <laughs> it's been six, more, than six, more than six years. More than six years. <laughs> So, of course, we're gonna be change it in Indonesia.
4: We got on the boat in the night' time from this jungle route, very dark, falling into pots of water and stuff. But before we get on the boat, there was, a few indonesians and you know human smugglers talking to each other and exchanging money with each other and i exactly clearly remember that they had guns Mm. we were so scared so we were put on the boat and like sit quietly it was a small fishing boat i think it like maximum fits 20 or something like that yeah Yeah. Yeah, it was so
5: small a lot of refugees was coming by other boats, small boats to our boats.
4: Yeah, oh my god, if people kept coming and like the, the population on the boat was increasing and we were feeling like it's sinking step by step. It was getting so heavy.
5: Yeah, but I think the smuggler wanted to put like more than a hundred person in the boat.
4: Yeah, all we was, we was hearing was more people are coming, we have to wait, we have to wait. So we waited and waited and more people kept coming until it was getting lighter, like near the morning. And we saw a police boat, a speedboat of police coming to us. And what the police boat did was they tied a rope into our boat at the fishing boat. And they pulled us all the way to Tanjung Priok, which is a harbor in Jakarta.
5: Seven hours on the boat, yeah. more than yeah. seven hours.
4: All those people, we were freaking out. They took us back to Jakarta on the boat. And when we arrived there, it was like paparazzi everywhere. There were two boats with the red logo of TV1, you know, the Indonesian TV on it. It had lots of cameras. We were all like, oh my God, hiding our faces. Then we were transferred into a detention from there. We went to immigration center and they searched us, took all our stuff away from us and transferred us to detention centers.
5: They took our phones. Everything. And everything. Just they gave it back our clothes. <laughs> we saw some families in a room like a prison. So we was thinking how long they have been there. I asked them. They said like seven months and more.
4: We were really freaked out because there was pregnant women there. There was like families living behind those bars, and we were really scared when we saw that. And they were taking pictures of us the whole time. Asked us to write our names on a board with our age and country and stuff. And we, okay. we had to we had to hold the board in front of ourselves and take picture against this wall with black and white lines on it, just like in the movies. So it was like, really embarrassing. Yeah, just like prisoners.
5: Yeah. Mm. After that, they took us to the boarding house. There was a lot of, like, army with heavy guns, 10 or more armies, so... So you were taken to this boarding house, which was surrounded by armed guards. Yeah.
4: So they were all, especially the guys, were planning this big escape so that all of us can just get out of here.
5: After five days, some asylum seekers, they actually, they bought some drinks, alcohol, and they give it to the... The army, the securities. Mm.
1: How, how did they buy the alcohol?
5: Money can do anything in Indonesia. So, no,
4: they didn't got the themselves. security. like, they gave the security yeah. money, like a couple hundred dollars, yes, and it's yeah, a lot well. of money in Indonesia. And you yeah. give it to the security, they'll bring you anything. <laughs> they drank together yeah. with the refugees, but the refugees didn't drink much. They gave most of it to them so that they can get drunk and fall asleep. My room was in the end of the corridor and Hossein's room was almost towards the front. So they were queuing to go out earlier. So they were creeping past the security guards that were falling asleep on their bellies. They were like really drunk. But they gave it only to the securities inside, not the ones outside. Like they didn't know that there was still security yeah. outside. And once they walked out... The securities outside saw that these people are trying to run out and they started violently attacking everybody with tasers and with, you know, they were trying to like beat people and kick people to drop them on the floor. And once Hussein and his dad walked out the door, his sister was after him, his sister got tased. There was like a big burn mark on her and she fell down on the floor, she was uh, screaming. The securities came in with guns and everything. And at that time, Hossein was outside, so... What happened outside?
5: I jumped from a wall, like four meters, and then they catch me with my father, and then they took me to the police car. So after that, we moved to the immigration, the bigger one, the detention.
4: His mom was in such a panic. She wanted to know where Hossein is and his dad is, so I was constantly interpreting for your mom. She would always like, cry and talk to the police and immigration people or any authorities that came to that place, you would always go ahead of everybody and try to get the news from them.
1: And that was the last time that you saw your mum and your sisters? Yes. As you were escaping from that locked boarding house?
5: Yes, that was the last time I saw her. Until now, just a video call and I didn't meet her. It's been right six years two months and five days, at the night of my birthday.
0: I wouldn't be surprised, based on what my researchers found, that the Australian government knew the boat was leaving from surveillance and satellites in the sky or any other kind of on the grounds of islands, like informants, and then tipped off the Indonesian government about these people seeking asylum, told them where they were and supported them to go, go find them and, and return them back to the Indonesian shores.
4: Asher Hirsch, he's a PhD researcher at Monash University and a senior policy officer at the Refugee Council of Australia.
0: So I'm looking at the way that Australia has outsourced its border controls to Indonesia in an effort to stop asylum seekers coming to Australia. I think anyone looking at the facts on the ground can see that Australia has its hand in almost all the anti-smuggling and anti-refugee policies in Indonesia.
1: Those kind of interceptions that Mojgan and her friends and family have experienced, there's those onshore interceptions as well as the turnbacks at sea. Could we say that they're the direct result of Australia's intervention in that way? Mojgan,
0: maybe you can explain When you say you were intercepted and towed back
1: at sea, was it the Australian
0: government or the Indonesian government who intercepted you?
4: Indonesian government.
0: Yeah. And so Indonesia doesn't really care if people seeking asylum leave Indonesia to go to Australia, but the Australian government has a very political need to stop the boats, and so it's been incentivising and and supporting the Indonesian government to, to do these kind of activities. And then training the Navy on how to intercept boats and how to know where they are. The Australian government's given the Indonesian government surveillance equipment and they've had informants and people working undercover help them in creating new laws that prohibit people smuggling and detain people without a visa, so, detain refugees and, and people seeking asylum indefinitely in Indonesia.
4: So, Australia is kind of asking Indonesia to enforce its borders for it.
1: But it's really touchy. Like, for one thing, Indonesia does not like the idea of Australia, this wealthy neighbour, intervening in its affairs.
0: So the cooperation started formally in 2000 under an agreement that Australia made with Indonesia and the International Organisation for Migration, IOM, called the Regional Cooperation Arrangement. And the details of that arrangement have never been publicly released, so it's hard to work out exactly what they agreed to. Uh, So since 2001 to 2016, Australia provided more than $240 million to IOM in Indonesia.
4: And that money goes towards keeping refugees fed and in basic shelters like the one that Hossein and his father are living in. IOM has many shelters scattered across Indonesia that has refugees and asylum seekers living in them. Refugees always talk about IOM, every refugee has heard of IOM, but maybe some refugees don't exactly know IOM's job because it's not their mandate to protect refugees.
1: A few years ago, IOM became what they call a related organisation of the UN, but under the agreement, it's still independent and it isn't overseen by the UN's General Assembly.
0: A key point that I want to raise is that the Australian government was intentionally paying IOM to facilitate detention in Indonesia with the explicit purpose, and they've said this quite publicly in parliamentary records, for example, with the explicit purpose of making sure that they don't come to Australia. So Australian money going to Indonesian detention centres so that people can't flee on boats to Australia.
4: Asher also says that in 2017, for example, Australia funded IOM in Indonesia about $40 million. It's more than twice what Australia pays UNHCR globally.
0: And instead, Australia's been funding IOM over UNHCR, uh, which shows, I guess, where their priorities lie. Rather than supporting refugees in Indonesia uh, and, and finding ways to support their livelihoods and to make sure that they are looked after through the UN uh, Refugee Agency, they're instead funding IOM to run a number of deterrence and other border control type
1: campaigns and programs. And what's in it for Indonesia? There's a lot of money that
0: goes from the Australian government to the Indonesian government, sometimes in the form of aid, roads, infrastructure. It's, it's a bit of money, it's in the millions, but it's it's not a, a huge incentive. The relationship between Australia and Indonesia has had its ups and downs, and you know sometimes good friends and sometimes hostile neighbours. And so it's uh, also unclear about why this has continued despite the political um, relationship perhaps also about Indonesia looking like a developed country with strong border controls and, and being part of a, a global cooperation on addressing irregular migration. And I think it's a, a mix of different things for the Indonesian government.
1: I got in touch with the Minister for Home Affairs, Peter Dutton, and requested an interview to ask him about this financial arrangement that Ash is talking about, but the Minister's office refused.
4: Of course they refused. Did you really request that?
1: Yeah, of course I did. I asked the Indonesian Department of Immigration as well, and they haven't responded yet. But we'll speak with an Indonesian immigration officer in another episode. We've heard a lot about IOM already, though, so I wanted to speak with them.
2: Uh, I'm Dayan Mitserski, Acting Chief of Mission uh, IOM Indonesia, in Indonesia for six years now.
1: There's a new Chief of Mission now, but Dayan is still in Indonesia as the deputy.
2: There are no refugees which are under IAM care as such in the detention centres anymore. We managed to convince uh, the stakeholders that IAM has enough uh, accommodation to absorb the entire refugee caseload from the detention centres and place them into community accommodation shelters.
1: And I, I suppose also if we look over the long term, say over the last decade, It's gone from IOM funding a whole range of activities, including awareness-raising campaigns about um, people smuggling, stopping the boat kind of activities, training local staff here, providing maintenance for detention centres, coordinating the detention. And so with less funding and over time, there's sort of a bit of a shrinking of
2: IOM's role. IOM was not in the detention centres to keep the migrants there and the refugees. On opposite, on the contrary, we went in to advocate for better conditions, to improve the conditions and to advocate those who are already with the refugee status to be taken into community accommodation, to be of assistance of the vulnerable cases, to advocate for them to be released, for the single women, for the mothers with kids. So we went in in order to get out, if I can say. Yes, previously there were various range of activities, but they were related in order to promote this advocacy to release the migrants and the refugees from the detention centers into the community accommodation. Now there is no such need. As of 15th of March 2018, IAM is not in a position uh, to take new migrants under IAM care. And that's why the numbers and IEM are going down.
1: And that's because, of course, you're receiving less funding and the funding is primarily from various parts of the Australian government?
2: Uh, no, it's not because of the less funding, but... The policy was introduced, IAM cannot take any more migrants under IAM care. That was policy introduced uh, by the partners uh, on a meeting between Immigration and Home Affairs, if I'm not uh, mistaken, and uh, I am, as a partner is implementing policy that was already agreed.
3: Now, if you look at the Australia-Indonesia arrangements, International Organization for Migration is in many, many countries across the world. But I haven't seen that same situation where they have so much access and they're financed by a government outside Indonesia to do work with asylum seekers and refugees inside Indonesia. I haven't known of that to happen anywhere else.
4: Trish Cameron is an Australian lawyer who we all know. She's been working on refugee claims here in Indonesia since 2014. She's been doing a whole lot more. She's my mentor.
3: Because... Australia was financing what was happening with asylum seekers and refugees up until you know the last few years. And because Indonesia was traditionally a temporary transit country where people would arrive there, maybe register with UNHCR and maybe not, and then try and get on a boat to go to Australia, it wasn't something that the Indonesian government ever had to think about because they moved through Indonesia, they didn't stay, and if they did stay, they were put into detention where IOM was responsible. The boats are not really coming anymore. So they've started to withdraw the money that they were putting in in Indonesia. So that's like the next stage of it. They're like, oh, we've, we feel like we've fixed our problem. We don't need to do that anymore. So then it becomes, what, what's Indonesia doing about that?
1: Boats aren't leaving Indonesia for Australia anymore.
4: But boats are still arriving in Indonesia.
1: Yeah, in just the last few months, hundreds of Rohingya people have been rescued off the coast of Indonesia.
4: This time, they weren't rescued by the Indonesian authorities. They were rescued by the Achenese fishermen.
5: So, around 20 months, yeah? That's
4: a long time.
1: Around 20 months in immigration detention centre?
5: Yes. But at the first immigration... the detention center at the, at the first one, I didn't see the sun even from the window or far away. I didn't see it for three months and 21 days. It's hard. So for when I got outside, when the immigration wanted to transfer me, so suddenly I saw the sun. So I got like um, how I say it like tika, zadan. He started me
4: blinking weird and his eyes couldn't stand the sunlight while Hossein and his dad were in detention his mom and sister escaped from the boarding house again
5: after they escaped after a few days they went on the boat again my mom with my uncle and they reached Christmas Island after three days on the boat after like seven months my mom uh, move it from Christmas Island to Nara Island. So and the situation there was really hard. My sister got psychology problem and my mom got, cat- got cataract. They transferred it to Darwin Detention Centre.
1: What's the current situation for your family in Australia?
5: Their bridging visa will expire and they don't know what will happen.
1: What are their options? Do you know?
5: There is no option. They don't know. Maybe they got the like three years visa, or they sent back to Naro, or deported, or God knows.
1: Do you think that you will make it there, or do you think that you could be waiting here for a very long time?
5: I don't know. We say it's chance.
1: Was there a potential for you to get resettled to the U.S. at one point?
5: I did even the second interview, medical checkup, everything for U.S.
4: And then Donald Trump became the president and he banned seven countries, including Iran. And that's when your process was stopped.
2: Yes.
1: So Mojgan, you and your family had been locked up in that boarding house, right? And you'd made that escape attempt with Hussein. What happened
4: for you guys after that? So they moved us after that. And then we were in a new boarding house, which was really open. It wasn't really escape attempt the second time because it was a very open boarding house. So we, one night we just walked out of it. Everyone walked out of it.
1: So you just like wandered out from this boarding house into the streets of Jakarta?
4: Yes, at 4am.
1: Where did you imagine you'd go?
4: We had no idea. We had no idea what to do. We had no SIM cards, no phones, no nothing. So we just uh, walked for a very, very long distance. We didn't know where we are in the middle of the night, raining, pouring down. We arrived to a hospital, I remember. And from the hospital, we asked the reception to get us a taxi. We knew we were headed to North Jakarta because that's where some other refugees were. And we went there.
1: What happened after that?
4: After that, we were mostly in and out of detention, getting on boats, getting in detention, getting out again. Then I decided that I don't want to get on boats again because it was terrifying. I was sick of it. I was sick of getting in detention and out of detention all the time and just losing everything again. But I wasn't thinking about how I can survive here, how long I would be staying here. The only thing in my head was, I don't want to get on boats. So after that, it was the most difficult time in Indonesia for us because we didn't know anyone, we didn't know the language. We didn't have any money left on us, so we really didn't know what to do. At that time, I remember immigration was checking on refugees and raiding different apartments, so anywhere we went to rent and stay in for a while, we would be kicked out of it, so we had to find a new place again. It was really difficult. During all those crazy times that we we were moving house to house, I met this uh, Chinese-Indonesian couple They really liked Iranian food, so they came to our place and we became really good friends. After a while, they insisted that I meet their son.
1: They were matchmaking you.
4: (laughs) Yeah, they were totally matchmaking me. His mom was like, I want you to marry my son. I was like, "Uh, what? (laughs) My first impression was was that he's this really quiet, very polite And I don't know, very like positive vibe boy. He was just really relaxed and quiet. And he spoke in a really nice tone. I was like, oh, this guy is classy. But then when he asked me to be his girlfriend, I sat down and and talked to him for like four hours, explaining that you should not date me. And these are all the reasons (laughs) because I'm a refugee, blah, blah, everything. I explained everything to him. And he was just like, it's okay, it's okay. But then a while after that, we had to move house and immigration came to our place and everything. And then he realized what it really meant. <laughs> he understood that it was not going to be easy. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> should be able to find
3: something.
4: Now I live with Patrick and I can't imagine my life without him.
1: He's been pretty busy lately.
4: Yeah, he's a doctor and he's at the front line of COVID. How do I put all the empty boxes? I'll just be sitting there all day, every day. That's my chair, you know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I need stuff for
2: you.
4: We live in this cute house that has two floors and four rooms. I decorated it.
1: You sent me this audio diary a year ago.
4: Yes, we are living comfortable to that sense of having a roof over our head and I'm so grateful for it. But I keep blaming myself for even being in a relationship with him because five years ago I did not know it's going to happen like this. I thought that maximum... in Another one or two years, we're going to go get results somewhere and he can come with us and everything is going to be fine. I didn't know I'm going to be stuck for the next six years. I love him to death. I love him so much. He's like my best, best friend. We can talk about anything. But I'm impacting his life really badly. And it's horrible. It's horrible to live in uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen. We keep having arguments because we feel, we feel far from each other. He's the best person ever. He does anything he can to support me. But the pressure is is just too much. We constantly have these conversations of, so what's next? And yeah, it's just a horrible conversation. And then he says, well, you are nearly 28 now. When do you think? We can go on with our life and I want to have a baby. It's disgusting. I hate having that conversation, but it's a daily thing. I can't see any future right now. I'm Mojgan Maarefizadeh.
1: I'm Nicole Kirby. You've been listening to The Wait.
3: You've been listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR. And we'll be having the International Women's Day special next week.